And I was struggling with this temptation. It's like, just preach something you've already preached, right? Nobody's ever going to know. I'm like, no, but I think God wants me to preach on Matthew 5, 6, because that's where we are. And I was excited about it. And I had gotten started. I knew in my head kind of some ideas of what I thought he might want us to study today. And so I won't tell you when I actually finished it, but I didn't give up because I was sure God had something that he wanted to say through and about Matthew 5, 6. So we're there. We made it. My slides aren't as nice as Jim's. And I've only got one that kind of actually moves around and does cool stuff. So you guys are going to have to forgive me. And it took me a while to find that one. So just be glad that I didn't spend too much time trying to find cool slides and I spent more time on getting ready. It may not look like I spent more time getting ready, but I did. So I may not have been here when, in fact, I'm pretty sure I wasn't when Jim started. And so there's a little bit of background information that I want us to get. And this, Jim and I have in common, we like to get ourselves situated historically and geographically. Okay, so when we situate ourselves geographically, you, you see where we are? Does anybody have any doubt? The Great Sea, you might go, what's that? Well, read the Mediterranean, see, that's what it says underneath. So, Mediterranean, this is Egypt, still is Egypt today. This is the Middle East, which for us would be Israel. There's Lebanon up here. Here's Syria. Here's Turkey, Greece. Okay, got it? That's where we are geographically, but let's zoom in a little bit. And forgive me, I use three different map sets to do this. Same Mediterranean, but now we're a little bit closer, zooming in on the Middle East. Let's keep zooming in. This region is what we would call Israel today. The two southern tribes of Judah back then, the ten tribes of the north were up here. Galilee is where we're heading. Here's the Dead Sea down here. Here's the Jordan River, Sea of Galilee. We're heading right up to the north of the Sea of Galilee, which, okay, now we're there. And we've got, what's happening around here? Dead Sea is still down here, okay, so forget that. We zoomed in, Sea of Galilee. Capernaum, remember Capernaum was a significant location in Jesus' ministry. And actually, Galilee, Gal, 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 how do you say English? Galilee, I almost say Galilee. No, Galilee, yeah, in English. Gal, this region of Galilee was very significant to Jesus. And in Matthew, starting back in chapter 4, and around the time that he starts calling the disciples, all the way up through chapter 16, he spends most of his time, and that's about one and a half to two years. If you want to know the, the time schedule, it's around, depending on whose timeline you use, it's around the middle of AD 27 up to the beginning or middle of AD 29. So he spent uh, half of his public ministry time, a little bit more than half, Hanging out, hanging out around here. Remember, Jerusalem, where he ultimately ends up, is further south. He's up here. And if we keep zooming in, remember, we're getting to Matthew chapter 5, right? The Sermon on the Mount, greatest sermon ever preached. Hey, I want to tell you something about the greatest sermon ever preached. Uh, I was a, a youth pastor for five years, um, full-time, in Belgium, and a few other years before and after. And during that time, we were starting Crossover, which is the organization that I lead to this day. I lead the Brazilian branch and help with the global leadership. And back then, um, and still to this day, actually, the guy that was the main founder of Crossover is a guy named Bill Jones. He was a youth pastor back then, too. We're talking early 1990s. And so I invited him to come over to Belgium from the United States to preach at a youth retreat that we were putting on. And so he preached, and the youth loved him. In fact, just the last 24 hours, these youth from 20, 25 years ago uh, started to interact with each other. We're planning a reunion next year in the United States because 
That same Bill Jones, and I'll get back to the story, what this has to do with the sermon or not, but this is like bonus information. Bill today is also the president of a, a university in the United States. It's called Columbia International University. And it was just ranked, last week the, the news came out, it was ranked the third best Christian college or university in the United States. And so I, I, I posted that because I'm like, I studied there. And my dear friend and mentor Bill is the president. God's using him powerfully. And so I just posted that, you know, I'm proud of Bill, proud of these guys. And then the youth go, hey, I remember he came and preached. These youth that are now 40 years old. <laughs> I remember he came and preached at a retreat. And I'm like, yeah, talking about that. Well, that same retreat, the Sunday night, he was back in Brussels and preached at our church. And the bulletin message title was, The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached. And so Jim has alluded to this when he preaches. It's like, yeah, you guys don't think he's going to preach the greatest sermon ever preached, right? That was kind of the reaction back then. They're like, so who does this guy think he is? Is he really that good? He's going to preach the greatest sermon ever preached? Well, so you know what he does? He gets up into the pulpit and he starts preaching the greatest sermon ever preached. He's standing here with his microphone and nothing else. And he's just preaching Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He had memorized Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He's memorized a lot more than that. Just keep that in mind. It, it's, it pays. It serves. It's worthwhile to memorize Scripture. But the thing is, I had never seen anybody get up and preach it. I mean, he just literally started preaching the sermon on the mouth. Like, and everybody was like, and then, and then, you know, that doesn't take a whole sermon. That's not 45 minutes. Then he goes, I want to share a little bit about why we should memorize Scripture. Yvonne today said it was a little bit chaotic here this morning. I think, yeah, it was you, chaos. Well, it was chaotic. When he said that, everybody was shuffling to get a pen and paper and anything they could find. To write. They started writing on each other's clothing, like, i got to take notes somewhere. The guy's going to tell us about the greatest sermon ever preached. He's going to tell us about how to memorize Scripture. And he just preached the greatest sermon ever preached in the name of Jesus and for the glory of Jesus. And so ah, that was powerful. So we are talking about the greatest sermon ever preached. Where Jesus comes to us and communicates powerfully about... Well, that's what we're doing, right? We're looking verse by verse, so let's do it. I, I'll get to it in a minute. You, you're going to figure out what it's about when you see the verse again. Zooming into northern part of the Sea of Galilee. Remember, we're at the Sea of Galilee right here. We're going to go right there. And now I switched again. This is Google. Thanks, Google. Capernaum. And right um, less than a kilometer. It's all kind of the same region. It looks bigger than it really is. Because this, this is really just a big lake. It's not like a huge sea. Zooming in closer, here's Capernaum. You see how easy it would be to just kind of walk through the fields and get up? This is a mount. And that building right there, let's zoom in on that. Zoom in a little bit closer. Now, you know where we're getting? It's actually today, it's called the Church of the Beatitudes or the Church of the Mount of Beatitudes. It's an Orthodox church, Christian, of Orthodox tradition. And actually, there's a retreat center there. You can't see it in this picture. This is an overhead picture. I did not take this because I can't jump that high. But all the pictures after this, I took. And... Because Gabriel and I were there last year. So, just some different perspectives on that particular church. But I want you to notice down here in the background, there's water. It's the Sea of Galilee. 
This is my son, Gabriel, obviously, and myself. And this is my dad. He's the one that invited us on this trip. Life-changing. I, I had for years not wanted to go to Israel. I don't. Patrick, did you, have you always wanted to go? Have you been to Israel? I've been there. I've been to that place. And I absolutely love it. Well, see, everything changed. Once I started walking around where it's so cliche, where Jesus walked. I walked where Jesus walked. It changes everything. It gives perspective and understanding on Scripture like you just didn't know you could have. So if you get a chance to go to the Holy Land, do it. And I don't care how much it costs you to do it. I only tell you one thing. Make sure you've got a good guy who really knows what he or she is talking about. We had a phenomenal uh, scholar in geology. It's amazing how much the rocks in that region tell us something important. This guy had like an undergrad and master's degree in geology and a master's degree and doctorate in theology and church history. And I mean, it was just phenomenal. And he also had a Jewish now follower of Christ who actually understood things that none of us could ever understand because he grew up in Israel in a Jewish family. So we had an amazing experience. And in that experience, we got to go here. Look over our shoulder. This We're still out near the church, but if you look down, you see what's happening? It, it we, You do have to go down because it is a mount. It has elevation. It's not even that high, but this maybe helps you a little bit better. You, you're looking down. You're on a mount. Now, we this is down a little bit lower. we got a, about halfway between the mount and the actual Sea of Galilee. Now, if I turn around, you're looking back up the mount. So you can see it's a mount. And there's that church that we were just standing nearby. Um, when we get... And let me just back up so you can see. Here's the, the point of all of this is imagine that road would not have been quite like that, but it could have been similar because of horses and uh, carriages perhaps, and certainly people walking two by two and three by three. So you would still have pathways leading up to that mountain. The church wasn't there. So you would go up there to do what? Well, like we go up to nice places to have a picnic, for example, or you might go up there with your followers because there are so many of them that want to hear what you have to say, you get at a higher elevation, and they're sitting gathered around so they can hear you preach. And if you happen to be one of the most popular rabbis of the time, named Jesus, and you have people that will go out of their way to find out where you are and go listen to you preach, then you need to have a venue where the crowds, the multitudes can actually fit in and still be able to hear you. So this is our kind of our geographical context. So you can just imagine that Jesus might have been somewhere up here and that others were trying to find shade during the day. Uh, or if it was a cooler day, they could have been scattered around anywhere around there, listening to Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount. And when he gets to verse 6, he says, Blessed are those, and we've already, Jim has already looked at that Greek word makarios, makarios, which means blessed or happy. In Portuguese, we say, Bem-aventurados, abençoados, felizes. Who are these ones that are happy? Who are these ones that feel blessed? They're the ones that follow the sequence. And you don't have to do it sequentially, but follow the teaching of the Beatitudes here in Matthew chapter 5, verses, in particular, verses 3 through 12, where we find the Beatitudes. So in verse 6, we're in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. We're in the middle of this teaching, which is what I was about to start saying earlier, and then I said, no, let's continue with the pictures. Jesus is talking about privileges and requirements that belong to those who are part of the kingdom. A lot of times we forget that, yes, God promises things to us, 
frequently, but there's another model that also works in the lives of Christians, which is not the promise model, but the covenant model. And in a covenant, it's not just one person that has a responsibility. When Jesus makes a promise, we don't have to do anything to receive it. When He makes a promise, He makes good on His promise. When He enters into a covenant relationship with us, He says, I will do this, and you'll do this. In other words, both parties have responsibilities. So when we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, we're not just getting the privileges. We're also looking at the requirements that are part of His glorious messianic kingdom that He has called us to be part of with Him. So we're looking at very particularly what Christ understands to be standards for righteousness in the way we relate to God and in the way we relate to each other. And then in the middle of all this, we get to verse 6, and it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied, or they will be fulfilled. So we've got these privileges and requirements that are relevant, that are applicable, that are mandatory for us as followers of Jesus. And we have His righteous expectations for us as followers of Jesus. And in particular, we're saying, what are His expectations concerning righteousness? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they will be satisfied. What does He expect from us when He says hunger and thirst? This was the same trip to Israel last year. Gabriel and I were up on top of Masada, which was the fortress where a group of Jews resisted the Roman uh, uh, army until, until death. They literally preferred death over being submitted to Roman domination. And, and it's high, and it's in the south, which is, normally it's desert, but this was at a height, so you had to climb to get up to the top. That means you're closer to the sun, right? So it really feels hotter. And Gabriel, that day, we just weren't drinking enough water. And I'm more like a camel, I guess, because I've got little fat storage areas around here, and there must be some moisture in there somewhere. Gabriel doesn't have that. And he was wiped out. If you had asked him, if you ask him right now, when was the moment in your life when you suffered from the most thirst, when you truly thirsted for something? And, and it would have been that. Because of the blazing sun and because of all the hard work, we were walking around like crazy. And at that moment, he was needing water desperately. Fortunately, we had some. The, the thing is, we weren't, we're all like, oh, look at that, look at that, and talking about history and geography. And then suddenly I'm like, oh, what happened to my son? He's like, ah, I need water. So we gave him water. When you hunger and when you thirst, we're talking about a deep desire that can be quenched. But you have to have access to what quenches. So when we say we're hungry and thirsting for righteousness, we're talking about a deep desire for righteousness. And we have to know from whom it comes. And we have to know how we can take ownership, if you want to say it like that, of the righteousness. But Jesus says the first thing is, I'm not just going to be making you automatically sanctified and purified and looking like Jesus. You need to want it. You need to hunger and thirst for it. This is not salvation. He doesn't say we have to do something to get salvation, right? Somebody has once said, it's 
easy to become a Christian. It's hard to stay a Christian. Not talking about losing your salvation, but talking about the daily disciplines and rigors of walking with Christ. It's not easy. A lot of the time, it's not easy. So he says, look, I'll do my part. I saved you. But I want you to be actively involved in this sanctification process. That means, first thing, I want you to hunger and thirst for righteousness. I want you to desire it more than you desire anything else. So, first component. It's just one verse, right? But we can break it down and get a lot of good meat out of this. You've got to hunger and thirst. You've got to long for it. You've got to desire it. Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2 are a psalmist's expression of this hungering and thirsting. He says as the deer pants. Pants is what happens when you're really hot and tired and thirsty and your tongue hangs out and you go, right? So you don't do that. Your dog is the one that does that or a deer does that, but you feel it. I mean, I hope you don't actually have your tongue hanging out going, that's why we have noses and we can breathe differently and we can get water and drink it. You don't have to pant, but that's what it means. It means you're out of breath, you're out of, uh, food, you're out of water, and you need desperately. And what is it that he says the deer needs desperately? Flowing streams. He doesn't want stagnant water, which will kill you sometimes. Stagnant water gets filled with bacteria that can even kill you sometimes. So the deer knows that. The deer doesn't want stagnant water. He wants flowing, fresh, cooling, refreshing water. And the psalmist says, my soul pants. God. My soul longs, is what some translations say, for God. Just like that deer longs for the flowing, fresh, life-giving water. And then he says, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? He's longing to experience God in a way that actually leads him to God's presence, which is something that happens to us. If we belong to Jesus, we get sick and tired of the world. We're supposed to get sick and tired of the world. The more we long for the righteousness of Christ, the more we see how the world is unrighteous, the more we sometimes start to say, God, just take me out. I just want to be with you. I just want to be in your presence. I don't want to deal with what the world is throwing in my face because it's disgusting and it's sinful and it is trying to move me away from you, not towards you. And the psalmist says, I long for God. I thirst for God. I thirst to be in His presence, just like the deer needs that life-giving water. So, we understand a little bit about hungering and thirsting. Well, what about righteousness? What is righteousness? What is it that we're supposed to hunger and thirst for? Ultimately, it's to be in God's presence. But God is gracious, and God has a plan. So God says, I'm not going to take you out of the world yet. I have a plan. I'm on a mission. You're on the mission with me. There are things I want to do in and through you. So you stay. So if our hungry and thirsting is okay to be, to, to be in Jesus' presence, but it's probably not going to happen soon, what can happen? And Jesus says, hunger and thirst for righteousness. And righteousness is the quality of being morally right or justifiable. It's morally appropriate and correct behavior. To be righteous means you don't blow it. To be righteous in a sense means you're perfect. You do, you always do what is just. And you always do what is good. You, you could even extend it. It gets a little bit more abstract. But you could say you always do what is beautiful. 
You always do what is noble. These are sub-characteristics uh, of righteousness. For us, we would call it the state of moral perfection required by God to receive eternal life. Think about this for a minute. You, to receive eternal life, you have to be righteous. Righteousness is the state, it's the moral state or classification that God expects of us in order to be saved. You want to be saved for eternity? You've got to be righteous. That's what 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16 says. And that goes back to quoting several Old Testament passages. Peter is well familiar with the Scriptures, which the Scriptures for him would have been the Old Testament for us. And he says, just as God who has called us is holy, and Peter's writing to the Jewish Christ followers that were scattered around the Roman Empire, he says, God has called us, and just as He has called us, and just as He is a holy God who has called us, He wants you to be holy. For it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And that be is imperative. So you shall be imperatively. You shall be. You must be. You need to be. You better be holy because I'm holy. And I, if you're paying attention, you go, wait, wait, there's a big problem here. You just said I have to be righteous to be saved. And you just said I have to be holy, which is a way, it's a word that we use somewhat synonymously with righteousness. You have to be holy in order to be saved. And you might have picked up, but I got news for you if you didn't. You can't be righteous. You can't be Holy, you can't save yourself through your righteousness and through your holiness unless we get a little bit doctrinal here and we talk about the justification of God that comes through imputation. There's a real easy way to remember imputation. Just change the M to an N and take off the shun. I know that in Portuguese, right, when you've got whatever word that is... Uh, Make, somebody make up a word for me that we always put when you try to translate it into English and you go except they do the funny thing even when it doesn't have it they put it in anyway oh help me out somebody huh ah in relation it's like that we say in relation oh so yes why are you in relating stop with the in relation so we're going to try to get rid of the shun the in, in, change the N to an N. Input. Inputation. Input means to put into. Imputation means to put into. So there is a way for us to have the righteousness that God demands to, for Him to look at us and see us as holy, as justified. And that is because He puts into us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So the righteousness of Christ is inputted imputed to us as believers. That is, it is treated as if it were ours. Christ's righteousness is treated as if it were ours. We are treated as if we possess Christ's righteousness. That's called imputed righteousness. We are justified not by what we did, but by what Christ did, and then God puts it in us. So the good news is, Peter, again, but now in his second letter, he says... 
he, he didn't say this, but you can kind of imagine that he was saying something like, hey, remember in, in sorry, it's still the second letter, but it was earlier, in 2 Peter 1, 6, 15 and 6, 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. Be holy, for I am holy. I memorized this when I was like six months old in the faith, 1 Peter. I couldn't remember if it was first or second. Remember in my first letter, I said, be holy, because God says, be holy, because he's holy. And now I'm telling you, don't worry about it. Maybe you guys got all riled up about that and got worried and scared. But here, listen to this. And then he writes in 2 Peter 1, verses 3 through 4, his divine power, God's divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Or this translation, which is the ESV, all things that pertain to life and godliness. According to our knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness, or according to through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So God called us to righteousness, and then he says, I will give you everything you need for life and godliness, for life and righteousness. We know that to be true. It comes with the calling, it comes with our knowledge of him. And in verse 4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers. When you see the words like he has granted to us or that you may become partakers of the divine nature, it's imputation. We don't do these things and we don't get these things on our own. We only do it because he's already done something, his divine power took Jesus to death on the cross and to the grave, but then resurrected Him. And He imputes that. His divine power gives us the righteousness of Christ through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So we've got all that we need for life and godliness. He's called us to it. And He's granted us whatever we need, promises, that He'll fulfill so that we may become partakers of His divine nature. Therefore, we escape the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. This is powerful. When Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied, Jesus knew that God had already made all of the provisions necessary so that we could be satisfied, so that our hungering would be satisfied, so that our thirst would be satisfied, and so that we would be able to live righteous, godly, holy lives. All right, back to... Matthew 5, 6. We're going to break it down a little bit differently. When you say hunger and thirst for righteousness, so we've got these components. It's desiring, right? Hungering and thirsting means you desire deeply. Then you will be satisfied. Now we're talking about receiving. You hunger for something and you get it. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, God is faithful and just. And He will fulfill His calling in you. And He will not let the cross go to waste. Everything that Jesus conquered on the cross, He wants to put into us. If we hunger for it, He wants to do it. So there's desiring and there's receiving, but there's something else that we need to point out. You don't see it yet in verse 6. You see it in verse 16, where Jesus wraps up a portion of the Sermon on the Mount. And he talks about being salt and light in verses 13, 14, 15. And then he says, what would be the reason for you to fulfill 
this, these kingdom moral code or principles. And for you to be blessed, you receive. But what would be the ultimate reason? The so that is, then they will see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. That's verse 16. So we can't look at verse 6 or 5 or 7 or any of the others without always referring to verse 16. The so that is, so that everyone who sees you living out the messianic beatitudinal, I, I'm, I'm sure that's a word, I've never used it, never heard it, but I bet it is a word, Beat, living according to the beatitudes. You do that, and the fruit is, you are blessed, you receive good things from the Lord, and everyone that sees you acting that way will give glory to your Father in heaven. They will praise your Father in heaven. So there's this one more component. Psalm 63 is very similar to Psalm 42 that I just read, but it elaborates now on this praising component. God, you are my God. Remember we sing this song. Rich Mullins, some of you might remember. God, you are my God, and I will ever praise you. It's something related to this. God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. And he sings this. I will seek you in the morning and learn to walk in your ways and step by step you lead. So I'm not going to sing all that because you already discovered I can't sing. So, But that's what he's basing it on. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh, my body, I faint if I don't have you. I need you. I'm in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I'm spiritually, it's, a, it's an analogy. He says, it is as to my soul as if my body were in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I need you. And then he goes on. So therefore, I looked upon you in the sanctuary. Beholding your power and glory. I need you. And in the same way that I know that when I'm physically thirsty, I've got to find water. When I'm longing for God, I can find God. And the psalmist would, would have used what was the central uh, focal point of God for his Old Testament people, which was the sanctuary. We don't do that anymore. So I have looked for you in the Salon das Nações because I know that every Sunday that's where the I3C is going to preach about you. Well, that's, yeah, amen to that. But that's not where we have to look, right? Because we can also say, so I looked upon you in my Bible on Tuesday morning at 6.53. Or so I listened upon you as I heard the Bible while I was working out or while I was driving somewhere. Or I fell on my knees and began to praise you, reciting scripture that I memorized. And this is on Saturday afternoon at 4.62, which would be 5.02. 5.02, all right? So, we long, and we find the, the solution. We long physically, we thirst, we need water, we go get water. We long for Jesus, we go find Jesus. Because He's in our Bible, He's in our prayer life, He's in our brothers and sisters in Christ, He's in our cultus, our services. Because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. And in your name I will lift up my hands. There's some serious praising going on here. Because he goes... The psalmist wasn't thinking this. But it's as if he already knew what was coming. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God. 
For they will be satisfied and they will praise like crazy. They will worship God like crazy. And it keeps going on about being satisfied. My soul is satisfied as with the fat. My stomach was satisfied yesterday at a steakhouse. We went to Tierra del Fuego um, because it was supposed to have really good Argentinian beef. And we went there and I filled myself with beef. And we also had a linguisa too, which was not bad. But we pretty much stuck to the beef because we wanted to be satisfied. And we were satisfied with that rich food. And a salad too, just to at least psychologically feel like we actually ate something healthy. It was like two little green, she probably ate four little green leaves. I ate two and felt good enough that I just kept eating meat after that. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. If I can put all of this together, there's my moving slide. Pay attention. This is good. You see, everything's getting all mixed up together. This whole dynamic of Matthew 5, 6. You've got the desiring, and we talk about it with thirsting and hungering. Then you've got the receiving, the being satisfied or being fulfilled part. And then look at Psalm 63, and you say, wait a minute. All of this is supposed to result in praising and worshiping of God. Oh, wait a minute. Look in the same sermon on the mountain in verse 16. All of this is supposed to result in praise and worship for God. So, we're wrapping up actually, doing pretty well on time. Um, when I start to talk about this, and when we really dwell on the idea of being fulfilled in God and by God, we start to think about, yeah, so He's, he's giving us blessings to satisfy our soul. He's giving us the riches of the knowledge of Him. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. Go to any doxology like Romans chapter 11. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom of the knowledge of God. And, oh, and He's just filling us up. And we're super satisfied and filled with joy. As if we had eaten at the best Shohaskari in Kurishiba and we didn't eat too much. We ate just... With, with God, you can never get too much. But my point is, in the steakhouse, you can, and then you actually regret it. You never regret it with God. He fills you up and fills you up and fills you up and you never regret it. You just want more. And your thirst gets more and your hunger gets more. And then you're like, God, give me more, give me more. And then you're like, whoa, wait a minute. Am I turning into a hedonist? Pursuit of pleasure and self-indulgence. That's what a hedonist is. Somebody who pursues pleasure and self-indulgence and, and has no desire to run risks or to feel pain. He only wants pleasure or she. And what I'm describing to you might sound like, well, you, you sound like you're talking about a Christian, right? But it sounds like you're talking about a hedonist too. So John Piper has called this Christian hedonism. It's kind of an unfortunate name. I'm, seriously, I mean, it's hard to get past the hedonism part if you really understand what it means. But if we describe it, you go, wait a minute, that actually makes sense. Does anybody... We have, a, we have a new Presbyterian in our midst. There he goes. He's a Baptisterian. <laughs> Lucas is here. Uh, you guys remember Lucas? He's, he's attending, I won't say where, I mean, it doesn't matter. He's attending a Presbyterian church. It's, it's a good one. I like it. And so, but in the old days, did they make you read the Westminster Catechism? Longer, shorter? Summary? Okay, right. There are some Reformed background churches. Historically, most of them would do this. Uh, in a contemporary setting, some of them still do, where you actually get catechized. That's what a catechism is for. And, they, and the whole catechism is based on questions and answers. And the first one is, what is the chief end of man? 
In other words, why the heck am I here? What do I exist for? What is the chief end of man? And the Westminster Catechism answers that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. All right? That's two different things. Glorify God, number one, and, it's a conjunction, and enjoy Him forever. And it had to be a good Baptist to get past this dualism here, okay? So John Piper is a Baptist. He's Reformed, but he's a Baptist, kind of a Neo-Puritan, brilliant pastoral and scholarly mind for things of God, not just for useless theology, that the subtleties that nobody really cares about. It's, it's all practical. Put it in your life. Apply it. Make it real. And do it for the glory of Jesus. And so he says, you know, if you think about it, if you think about the Sermon on the Mount, and then look at verse 16, if you think about Psalm 63, the hungry and thirsting, and then the whole praising part, and look how it all... So now back up to my moving slide. I've got a moving slide. We've got to take advantage of it. And, and you look how it just all mixes up together, and it just goes around and around, and it's all, you can't pull one thing out from the other. So he's basically saying it's not glorify God and enjoy Him forever. He's saying if we look at the Sermon on the Mount, if we look at Psalm 63, if we look throughout Scripture, he's saying glorify God by enjoying Him forever. All right, say bye to the moving slide, because I don't think we're going to see it anymore. Bye, moving slide. All right. So here's what John Piper does. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. And so I'm not bringing you today, and Jim, when he did, and we'll preach again about these beatitudes, kingdom codes, kingdom laws, kingdom covenants. We're not saying, oh, just listen to the law, follow the rules. Hunger thirst for righteousness. And then forget about the, well, wait a minute. Hunger thirst for righteousness, then I'll be fulfilled. And, and whoa, maybe it's okay even for me to want to be fulfilled because it's all wrapped up together. And then it starts to look like this. We're going to kind of do some mutations here or permutations of Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That's, our, that's the ESV. That's what we looked at. Now, we made a substitution here, but I wanted you to see both. We sometimes use holiness as a synonym for righteousness. So blessed are those who hunger and thirst for holiness. Now let's change it again. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for God, because that's what we saw in the psalmist. And every time we get focused on certain aspects of God and forget about the God of those aspects, our focus is wrong. When we talk about the gospel of God, oftentimes we should be talking about the God of the gospel. When we talk about the kingdom of God, we probably ought to be talking about the God of the kingdom. And when we talk about the mission of God, probably it would serve God's purposes better if we talked about the God of the mission. And when we talk about the God, the glory of God, we need to say, oh, okay, but what about the God of glory? Always push it back to focus on God. So if we do that here, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for God, for they will be satisfied. Change it again. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for God, for they shall receive the desires of their hearts. And then you go, okay, pay attention. Is it right? Do you see what's happening here? I'm not, I'm not changing the meaning at all. I'm just kind of trying to do a... Do uh, the message version. I didn't even look to see what the message has to say about this. I kind of avoid the message. It's a good kind of commentary. It, I mean, Sajin, don't look at that. Even linguaging Georgia, don't look at that as a, as a translation. Look at it as a thoughtful commentary on the original text. So probably, that he probably did something like that with this verse too. Uh, and it's even more. It's probably got twice as many words and a lot of more flowery ones. But it, it, it'll help understand. That's what I'm trying to do. 
And then when you read the desire of their hearts, you start going, oh, wait a minute. Psalm 37, 4. It's one of the first verses we ever memorize when we become Christ followers, right? Because we do it for the wrong reason, usually. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. And we go, oh, delight yourself in the Lord, and He'll give us the desires of our hearts. And we focus on the desires of our hearts, and we go, wait a minute. If we stop and think about it, we've got to think, the whole point is to delight yourself in the Lord. Now, delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Hunger and thirst for righteousness, and you will be satisfied. Whoa, it's like the whole the 37.4 of Psalm and uh, Matthew 5.6. It's like Jesus had already read Psalm 37.4. Wow. Because it's just an Old Testament and a New Testament version of the same idea. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Our desire as Christ followers is to hunger for God, and thirst for Him, and to thirst for His righteousness, desire it more than anything else, so that we will be satisfied and He will be glorified. So that we will be satisfied, Matthew 5, 6, and He will be glorified, Matthew 5, 16. If you hunger and thirst for anything that is not God and His righteousness, you're committing idolatry. If there's anything that's more important to you than getting into the Word each day, if there's anything more important than cultivating a relationship with God through prayer or through worship or through living out these beatitudes when you go to school every day and you go to work every day, if there's anything at all, you're committing idolatry. And you will never be fully satisfied because you're looking for this satisfaction in the wrong places. I will make a confession to you. I like to study. And I don't like to study for nothing. I'm dead. So there are these people who are much more spiritual than I am, who they like study and they learn things deeply much better than I do. But they were just doing it sitting at home and, and taking notes. I'm like, if I'm going to study and take notes and do stuff, then somebody should give me a piece of paper for it so I can hang it on the wall so everybody knows I did it. Right? That's how I am and that's my confession. You guys understand I'm making a confession, right? It's a sin. If I'm not careful, it turns into idolatry. And I... I admit, if you ask my family, they're on the wall. But they're in my house on the third floor where most people don't go. They're not in my office for everybody to see. So it's like, either it is because I'm humble and not trying to brag, or I've created a shrine for myself. I don't know. And if I ever get up there and... Literally, like, like literally. If I'm standing there looking at all of them going, eh, that's idolatry. I'm not hungry and thirsting for righteousness anymore. I'm not hungry and thirsting for God anymore. Okay, that's my personal sinful example. You guys, we're going to pray now and, and we're going to ask God to show you your sinful. Everybody's looking at me like, why is he saying that? I don't sin. Like, you guys already got it, right? Be holy for I am holy and he already made the way and so I accepted it and now I don't sin anymore. Okay, just, I'm feeling bad now. Would you guys just, just raise your hands if every now and then maybe you think you might sin? Just... Anybody ever? Okay, I feel better now. Thank you. So we really need to pray. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your word is rich. Thank you that even if we just take one little verse, we can start to break it down and we can look at how it relates to other teaching in the Old Testament and other places in the New Testament. And the rich, the message becomes rich and it becomes powerful and it becomes applicable. And that's our desire today that when we leave, as of now, and to the point at which we leave, and then the point at which we get home, and the point at which we 
head out to do something tomorrow and start our weeks, that the message would penetrate our hearts to the point um, where we act, to the point where we become deliberate about hungering and thirsting for you, all of you, and for your righteousness and your holiness to be input, to be put into us, and to be worked out in such a way that we experience the joy and the satisfaction and the abundant life that you, Jesus, promised us. So that, like the psalmist did in Psalm 67, or so that, like you yourself said, Jesus, in Matthew 5, 16, not only will we be satisfied, but you will be glorified. I pray for my brothers and sisters this week, Father, that their light, that the light of Jesus in them would shine so brightly that people would see in their good deeds Jesus and that they would give glory to you, Jesus, as they live out Matthew 5, 6 and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, the rest of the Beatitudes in particular for your honor and glory this week. Help us, Jesus. We need you. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't do this on our own. You did it, and now we need you to apply it. We need you to make it real. We need you to keep us focused. We need you to keep our eyes off of idols. We need you to keep us thinking about you, longing for you, worshiping you this week. In Jesus' name, amen.